You're tuned into an extra from Aspen Ideas To Go, a podcast by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In this short series, a supplement to our regular show, we're featuring discussions with cultural leaders on what every American should know. It's a project by the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. The program is asking these leaders and the American public for facts and cultural references. The submissions are being compiled into a crowdsourced national list that will serve as a foundation of common knowledge. The idea sprung from the 1987 book Cultural Literacy. It laid out 5,000 words and references, a sort of common vocabulary, needed to be engaged in the U.S. Author E.D. Hirsch saw major blowback, with critics calling the book racist and sexist, among other things. But it initiated a powerful conversation about the knowledge needed to navigate American life. Executive Director of the Citizenship and American Identity Program, Eric Liu, says now more than ever, a diversifying U.S. needs a shared base of knowledge. But a 21st century sense of civic literacy must be radically more inclusive than the list in cultural literacy. In today's show, Liu speaks with David Henry Huang. Huang is a Tony-winning American playwright, screenwriter, and opera librettist. His work includes the plays M. Butterfly, Chinglish, and Yellowface. He's a child of Chinese immigrants and growing up used television as one way to integrate into American society. He shares more with Eric Liu. David, thank you for joining us. Great. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I want to start just with you know your own conception uh, of yourself as both citizen and artist. And uh, when you think about you know the the David Henry Huang canon of uh, ideas and memes and references from history and culture, how did you create your own body of common knowledge? You know, I actually do not consider myself to have been that voracious a learner. I mean, I feel like there are other people I know who um, were kind of more diligent students than I and, and, and worked harder than me. And I also didn't happen to, though I'm Chinese-American, I didn't have to happen to grow up with kind of uh, uh, tiger parents. So, um, but I've, I've always been um, curious about um, society and um, politics um, and history and the world that, um, that I was born into. And maybe this has something to do with being uh, the child of immigrants, um, but I was really interested in trying to understand the codes of the uh, of America, uh, because my parents were able to convey a certain amount of information, but you know they were still figuring out how the country works as well. So I think as the, as the child of immigrants, you end up um, seeking out a lot of that information on your own. I love that phrase, the codes of America. So w- when you even say a phrase like that. Uh, unpack what you mean. What kinds of codes? I grew up in the in the '60s and '70s, and um, you know, so uh, let's talk about pop culture um, and the fact that there was this kind of incredible uh, music revolution that was happening, and then there was this great kind of uh, cinema revolution. I mean, the '60s and '70s, and then there's this kind of great cinema, independent cinema thing happening in the '70s, and then you know, you look at different eras, and you notice where the center of the culture seems to be at the moment. I would argue that the center of our culture, and a lot of the most interesting things that are happening, are in television um, and on and the web. Um, so you know, that's something that if your parents are immigrants, they, they don't necessarily know that. Um, but that's, for me, a kind of integral part, and, and certainly was as a kid, of trying to claim my place in this culture and be 
uh, and feel like I was a fully integrated member of American society. When do you feel like you became awakened to the idea that, hey, uh, I understand the culture around me, but now I actually want to create some of this culture so that uh, stories like mine that are Chinese-American and Asian-American can get woven into the fabric of this cultural code? You know, as as a kid, I noticed that there were, if I knew that there was going to be a uh, TV show on or a movie with an Asian character, I would sort of go out of my way not to watch it. <laughs> I learned the lesson fairly early that, um, that the portrayal would be something that would just make me feel bad. So I think when I got to college um, and I saw some plays, I thought, oh, maybe I can do that. Um, and I had the opportunity to study playwriting um, between my junior and senior year in college with the great American playwright Sam Shepard and another amazing uh, playwright Maria Irene Fornes. And they taught us to more to write from our unconscious, uh, that is not to censor yourself, and to uh, try to still the voice that says that what you're doing isn't good enough and nobody cares. Um, and once I did that, I found these issues appearing on the page, things like immigration and being Asian-American and clash of cultures. And so some part of me uh, was apparently very interested in these issues, but my conscious mind hadn't figured that out yet. And so writing then became a way for me to discover what I was really thinking about on a deeper level. You know, you've named just in passing there two early uh, influences in the world of theater, Sam Shepard and, uh, and Maria Irene Fornes. Who, who else or what else, if not uh, individual artists, would you put in that bucket of early influences that shaped your distinctive cultural voice? Um, well, I mean, I was mentioning, you know, a, a, a lot of pop culture influences earlier. And, and I was, before I became a playwright, I was a musician. Um, so I was uh, a Chinese kid who was raised playing, you know, playing violin since I was uh, <laughs> uh, seven or eight, something like that. Um, uh, but then when I got to college... I learned to improvise, and I started playing jazz, and I started playing rock and roll, like electric violin, and that became a a huge influence on me, and I feel like uh, for many years in college and afterwards, I thought I was probably going to become a musician, Mm. and then at a certain point, uh, because I was also interested in playwriting, it seemed to me that the future of being a a jazz violinist was somewhat limited, and somehow being a playwright felt like a more sensible career um, (laughs) choice. From the perspective of of the parents, the immigrant parents, it's all relative. The the playwriting career seemed much more secure than jazz violinist. I think neither career seemed particularly (laughs) uh, good to my parents, but they were uh, quite, you know, for immigrant Chinese parents, quite open-minded. As you extend from your cultural identity then to your civic identity, because you've said, you know, from early age as well, you're interested in politics, what were the political influences or formative pieces of content or history that shaped your own identity and your own um, artistic voice? Right. Well, for some reason, I just at at a very early age started becoming interested in presidential elections. Hmm. And I remember watching on television, staying up, I was, I must have been, uh, what, nine or ten years old, and watching Robert Kennedy win the California primary, and he gave a speech from a hotel in Los Angeles. That was the end of the broadcast, and there was nothing more to watch in those days, so I went to bed, and the next morning I woke up, and, and RFK had been shot mm-hmm. later that night. I guess, in retrospect, the sort of theater of American politics really 
fascinated me. And then I happened to have a father who was also very interested in politics and always kind of imagined that one day he would run for office. He was a Republican, and so he was eventually became, he was on the, a Republican like governing committee for um, the area of Southern California that I grew up in, uh, which is in the San Gabriel Valley, which is now very Chinese, but at the time was quite kind of conservative in the home of the John Birch Society. Mm. Um, and we even got to the point where my father was uh, came close to running for lieutenant governor of California before he uh, got into uh, caught up in sort of a political scandal which uh, then made it untenable for him to do that. We children were much relieved because it meant we weren't going to have to spend all this time going to Kiwanis clubs in Stockton. <laughs> you know, you, you, this, um, uh, the, this swirling set of influences now you've described that, that run the gamut from Sam Shepard to jazz to your, your father's own political aspirations. You know, I, I want to return to something, though, that you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago, which was just... Uh, the bad feeling that you got uh, when you turn on the TV, the few times there might be an Asian character, and the, and the general prevalence of a certain set of stereotypes of either alienness and foreignness or submissiveness that surrounded uh, the few Asian characters that did exist in pop culture. For you, as somebody who had this ambition to recode, when and how did you begin to find uh, the wherewithal to imagine kind of capturing these stereotypes uh, and flipping them around and subverting them. I mean, this is uh, what I've just described is a lot of your work, but I'm, I'm thinking yeah. in particular of, of M. Butterfly, uh, w which takes so many Western stereotypes about Asians and uh, inverts them, subverts them, and by the end blows them up. How did you cultivate that skill and mindset to want to do that? After having uh, learned from Sam, uh, Sam Shepard and Irene Fernandez that I was, uh, through my work, that I was interested in these subjects, I think it also happened to coincide with my coming of age during a period where the, you know, what we would come to think of as uh, the sort of Asian American identity movement was being born. Mm -hmm. um, so this was kind of in the late 70s and in the early 80s, and I became a part of that. So, I mean, I always feel like there's a reciprocal relationship between the artist and the work, that the artist, in a literal sense, creates the work, but it's also true that the work recreates the artist. So, what I learned from my writing made me interested in exploring this sort of nascent Asian-American um, uh, frame of mind. And for, with those two axes, the, the political on the one side, uh, political identity, if you will, and a sort of artistic impulse on the other, uh, they kind of came together. And uh, I found that what worked for me was to be kind of consciously theatrical mm -hmm. and meta, as we would say today mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, and to therefore use the images that I grew up with, which caused me a lot of pain, and play with them, reinvent them, subvert them, take them over, take ownership of those images, and re remake them in my own sense. You know, fast-forwarding to today, uh, a time where, you know, there, there remains no shortage of uh, um, uh, cringeworthy or outright uh, harmful stereotypes uh, of Asians and Asian Americans. Um, and yet, at the same time, you know, this is an age where there is a uh, an Asian-American family on a uh, popular sitcom, Fresh Off the Boat, that's now been renewed for a third season. Um, and there are more faces and voices uh, in both culture and politics. How do you feel like your own your own story, but also your work, 
um, represents a, a shift in our country, a, a shift in our notions of who is American and who is us? Well, I do feel like this is sort of one of the central questions that we're dealing with in the culture right now, and that, um, you know, many of us were present and, and participated in a culture war in the 80s, which then brought more, we now say, diverse views uh, and, and art and stories uh, into, uh, into American literature and, and culture. And at this point, I feel like there's another culture war going on, which is about uh, re-centering or redefining the mainstream. Mm. So coming into this, uh, this round, we've uh, been able to say, okay, well, it's not just white men who, you know, who create uh, great art and great culture, and they, and they have all the stories. There are these other stories, too. Um, but those other stories, um, uh, you know, five years ago, um, were kind of satellites around and, and the, uh, more peripheral and the center of the mainstream remains sort of the white, straight, male point of view. Mm -hmm. And what I think is going on right now is to now change the notion of mainstream, change the notion of the center itself, so that um, with Caucasians rapidly becoming a plurality rather than a majority in this country, um, we are moving towards a time when there is no mainstream that is defined by race um, or, or, or gender per se. And that, I think, is the struggle that we're undergoing at this particular moment. You know, in the midst of the struggle, where do you, where do you see um, the, the, the core of this, uh, uh, of this new mainstream headed? I think we don't know where it's headed, which is part of the excitement of, of going into uh, a different paradigm for the future. You know, what we consider to be authentic for any given ethnicity, community, culture, is constantly in flux. Mm. So whatever we think of as an Asian-American community right now, or an Asian-American culture, uh, you know, that is a fairly artificial conflict to begin with, um, as you pointed out uh, quite early in, in your career. And um, we, it, it, it is in and of itself a hybrid. Similarly, um, whatever we think of various other cultures and our associations with Latinos or African Americans, none of those things are either pure in the sense that they represent where those groups were 50, 100 years ago, um, neither are they unchanging. So I think there is necessarily a degree of hybridity which exists simply when you put different people together who come from different backgrounds, which is the whole experiment of this country, and see how we work together or don't. I want to close uh, with a question that is in many ways at the heart of the Whatever Americans Should Know project uh, that, that we're running out of our program uh, at the Aspen Institute. And uh, we, we invite people all across this country to um, submit simple lists of 10 uh, top 10 things that they think every American ought to know that ought to be um, in this body of common knowledge. Uh, what's on your top 10 list? Let's see. My list starts with the blues. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is Japanese-American internment. Number three, the Six Nations or the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, then 40 Acres and a Mule. Then the Stonewall Riots. Uh, next is Sally Hemings. 
The next one is Loving versus Virginia. Then Death of a Salesman, the play. The Know Nothing Party from the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And it ends with the Chinese Exclusion Act. I think that's 10. So Death of a Salesman, say a word about why that, <laughs> why that makes your list. Well, you know, as a playwright, I felt I wanted to include a play. And I was... I was and I didn't want to include something and sort of just say something that happened fairly recently, like, I love Hamilton, but it just <laughs> felt too current to put Hamilton on the list. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think I feel like Death of a Salesman is uh, one of the masterpieces of American theater and also one that has a particularly profound social consciousness and really tries to dissect the American dream um, and look at both its seductiveness and how it occasionally happens, but also what happens when, uh, when people fall short of that dream. Um, and as someone, again, who's the child of immigrants, who was very influenced by the aesthetic and the principles of the American dream, Death of a Salesman, even though it is not about, uh, ostensibly about people uh, like my parents, but it really has always spoken quite deeply to me. Whether you know it or not, it's uh, completely apt that you should cite Death of a Salesman because many years ago you were described by Time magazine as, uh, quote, the first important dramatist of American public life since Arthur Miller, close quote. And, uh, oh, yes, yeah, that's very nice. <laughs> um, and uh, it's very obvious just in this short conversation uh, why and how that is so. And uh, David, so grateful to you for um, spending a little bit of time to uh, share some of the, the forces that shaped your own voice and the ways in which you envision um, our culture and our uh, politics evolving in the future. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks. That was really fun. That's Eric Lewis speaking with David Henry Huang. Huang is a pioneer in theater and a citizen artist. His plays include M. Butterfly, Chinglish, and Yellowface, and the Broadway musicals Aida and Disney's Tarzan. Lou directs the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. The program's What Every American Should Know initiative wants to hear from you. Submit your top 10 list for what should be included in a common American language at whateveryamericanshouldknow.org. Today's show was produced by our team at the Aspen Institute with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.